0: As you know, Jesus had a way of telling stories so that we could understand profound things. He wanted to uh, describe to us things that are in our minds ethereal, things that are beyond reality, uh, and but try to bring them and connect those things that are hard for human beings to understand because we haven't experienced them yet and bring them down into such a, a way that we could get it. We see the fairness of God in that, that process and that he's constantly wanting to be clear with us so that we uh, have no surprises when we get to the future. It's as if uh, you're going on a trip and, and you're trying to, out of compassion, to say, hey, you better pack a coat, uh, make sure you bring a hat, some gloves or sandals or a fishing rod or whatever that thing may be so that you don't show up unprepared. We're having conversations about what is called the Bema Seat of Christ. We're about three or four weeks into this this conversation, and we've had this conversation before, but I believe that it is so important for Christians to understand the Bema Seat, and I, I believe that it is surprising how many times the writers of the New Testament refer to this, and even the Old Testament in a very mysterious way, but the writers of the Bible refer to this intersection, and it's equally surprising how few Christians know about this intersection to which we are all going to arrive. Right after the first service, I had someone who said, man, I've been a Christian for X number of years, and I've never, ever heard about the Bema Seat of Christ, that intersection. So we continue this, this conversation. And each week, just so there's no confusion, because this could be a dangerous message for those of you that have heard this several times, bear with us in fairness for those who are just hearing this. In short, the Bema Seed is an intersection where believers in Christ, Christians, Christ followers will intersect with our Savior, with Christ. This is not a place where uh, non-believers will be. Neither is it a place where eternity is in the balance. It is not a place where this is going to be a determination of heaven or hell that has already been settled. This is a place in the story that Jesus told. He told many different stories, one of them that pertained to this conversation, was what we call the parable of the talents, and and he tells a story about a a master that had given to some servants, or in our case, we would say, an owner of a business, had given to some of his employees, managers, a certain level of responsibility. In this case, it's called talents. In some places, it's called minas. It doesn't matter. It could be dollars. It could be hours. It could be opportunities. He's given these these folks uh, to uh, an opportunity to take what has been given and multiply it and do something with it. But then there's a day of, of reckoning, so to speak. That sounds heavy, but there's a day of intersection where these, these employees, these servants, are going to come and to report and give uh, an, uh, you know, a, uh, an update of what they've done with what they've been given. At that point, then something sobering happens. Now, I'll give you a preface to who we are at 360. We believe that it is compassionate to speak truth, that it is not compassionate to camouflage truth just to make us all feel better. That is not, that is not fair. So if, you're, if we're going to go take a trip to, you know, the... Uh, the North Pole, and I don't tell you that's where we're going to go, and I haven't given you a fair warning, and you get out, you know, in Bermuda shorts and sandals, then it's not I'm not a very fair or compassionate person. I'm going to say this several times today. God is so compassionate that He tells us in advance what's going to happen. If He were not compassionate, He wouldn't tell us anything, and then we'd show up and be totally shocked, but that's not how God operates. For that reason, Jesus said, Let me tell you that there is a day coming where, whether you've done nothing with what you've been given or you've done a lot with what you've been given, there is this intersection that you will face and, and, and you'll appear. For some, it will be a glorious moment. For some, it will be a disappointing moment. I'm um, speaking of Christ followers. But for none of us, it will be a moment where we now have lost our place in eternity. I want to make sure you completely understand we're not in the balance here of our, of our eternal destination. This is a more of a Christ assessing where, uh, what we've done in our lifetime. The word bema, by the way, is in the original language. It's not something that somebody made up along the years. When you read uh, the scripture, you'll see the word bema. So let me, let me begin today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It's our key verse, although there are many verses that speak about what we are calling the Bema Seed of Christ. And let me show you where that word is. Paul, the writer here, is writing to Christians. And so, uh, as the more I digest this verse and hover over it, the more I see that every word is so important. He begins by saying this We must all appear. That's not an option. Nobody gets, nobody gets to audit this class. Uh, and he's saying, we all, Christians, so he's speaking to us as, as believers because that's who he's, that's the context, and that's who he's writing to. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That word judgment, if you have a Bible program that shows you where the Greek is so we don't get too complicated here, that word judgment is the word bima. Or a, a bima tosars, but it's the the root is bima. In that culture, everybody knew what the bima seat was. It was coming. It was coming from what's called the Isthmian Games. These were like the Olympics. And once the track and field athletes had run their course and done their you know performance, then they would stand at this this throne, basically where the judges would assess the race. That throne, that seat was called the bima seat. So again, when Paul was speaking, he was being very compassionate. He was saying, I want you to understand this, so let me use language that you might uh, uh, understand. It would be like us saying, hey, this is a two-way street. We understand what that means. Or it's raining like cats and dogs. We understand what that means. 2,000 years from now, like literally, it's like cats and dogs are coming from heaven. Of course not. But we, we get that, that lingo. I'm going to pull out some of these words each week, and, and I will say to you that this is a hard, a hard, sobering message today. So I would say all in favor of, of uh, you know, that you're in for a hard message, raise your hand, but unless you want to get up and uh, move, then you're kind of stuck. So, uh, <laughs> But I want you to understand that sobering messages that we find in the Bible come from a compassionate heart that's the thing you can't miss god's not angry at us he's ch- he's our champion truly and because he's a champion is hey make sure you wear a coat and bring a hat that's the heart it's coming from that's why jesus said talked a lot about the end times what's going to happen here's here's the reality of it so we begin here in 2 corinthians five ten. we must all appear before the bema seat the judgment seat of christ that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done, here are the keywords while in the body. That's our key word today. While, key words, while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, this afternoon, there will be many American football teams that are playing. They, some of them will be even games where the, the score is close. Some of them will be lopsided games like the one I don't know if you saw on Thursday night. Boy, that was not pretty. Uh, I forget what the score was, like 36 to zero or something. Some games will be like that. But on the games that are close, we all know what happens in the last two minutes. Everybody gets pretty passionate. And then you sit there and wonder, like, maybe you should have gotten this passionate, you know, uh, earlier in the game. But now they're, like, you know, pouring it on full throttle. I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus doesn't tell us the exact hour or day that he's coming back because he knows how human beings are wired and understands that we really pick it up on that two-minute drill. So, for example, if we knew that Jesus was coming next Thursday at noon, guess what would happen on Thursday at 10 a.m.? we would all become Billy Graham. We would, like, be the most massive evangelist known to mankind, and we'd sell our house and give everything. So Jesus is like, hey, I kind of want you to live that way all along rather than, you know, in the the two-minute drill. And so what he says here is while in the body. So these football teams have 60-clock minutes to play, 60-clock minutes. And they understand that that's all the time they have. So in the last two minutes, when they're just like pouring it out, the second after the clock hits zero, the game is over. We would say game over. There's no way that they're going to go to the referees and say, you know what, yeah, I, I was kind of hungry and I did, I should have got a snack, but you know, that last two minutes was not my best but good news, I went to the locker room, got some Gatorade, ate a few power bars, and I am ready to go. So just put two more minutes on the clock, and boy, you know, it would be, it would be great. Of course, not going to happen. Neither is it going to happen in eternity. That's why Paul emphasizes, it's while in the body. It's while the clock is playing. And that's why God would say, see, I'm your champion, there's a clock that's playing. Now, none of us know when we're going to die, and none of us know when the exact time of the, you know, the end of the world is coming. None of us know that. But we all know that we're still in play, and the reason is because of the breath that you just took in and breathed out. You see, that's an indicator that God said, hey, you're still in the game. And so we also read here that in Revelation chapter 22, the very last of, uh, chapter of the Bible, Jesus says these words, behold, I'm coming soon. Not going to tell you when, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. He can't wait to reward those who have this poured at, my reward is with me and I will give to everyone keywords, according to, according to what we've done. Not according to what somebody else has done. Teams will win or lose this afternoon according to how they play, according to how many fumbles, according to how many interceptions, according to how many missed opportunities they will win. It's not according to what the team down the street or the another state is playing. It's according to what they did. So what we're seeing here is a picture that's being painted of a sober reality. I'm going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, key word and sobering word, whether good or bad. Now, listen, from my point of view as a a speaker, it would be so tempting to say, let's just skip over that part because that's pretty rough. The whether good or bad part, it would be so tempting to say, hey, you know what, we're going to go to heaven, and, uh, man, it's going to be beautiful, and we're going to sing songs about, you know, bricks of gold and, you know, angels singing and blah, 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 and that's all wonderful. That is going to be pretty wonderful, you know, past, past our, like, imagination. But what I, what, what I think the importance of the constant teaching of the Bema Seat by Jesus, by the writers of the Scripture, by John who penned Revelation, by Paul, he, it's like one of those infomercials. But wait, there's more. There's more. It's not all about just being in heaven. From all appearances, there are going to be some differences. And today, we're going to look at some of those differences. If you're a note taker, there are going to be five differences today. So it's not just a couple. So if you're, you are you want to write these down, I invite you to write these down. And the reason I invite you to write it down, by the way... Um, is that we're trying to live this thing out, right? We're not just to hear, get a, an intellectual tickle or like, oh, that was really cool or, ooh, that's, that's pretty tough. We're really saying, hey, we're going to live this out. So I just know when others are preaching, man, I'm over there taking notes and I take those notes and I put them in my car, I put them in my office because I'm trying to absorb it. Just, so just, you know, not to make you feel bad or anything, but um, just uh, th- that's the purpose. First of all, we're assessed differently. We're all assessed differently. And uh, uh, when you think about uh, uh, American football, for example, since we're on the topic, American football players in the NFL will be assessed differently. Let's take the quarterback. Going to be assessed differently than a college player. And a college player different from a high school player. And a high school player different from you know, uh, from when kids play. I don't, it's not minor league, major league, kiddie league. What's it called? Pee-wee league. Okay, Peewee league. All right, gotcha. So, you know, different assessments, there's expectation for an NFL player. So, watch this. James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should presume to do what I'm doing right now, to be teachers, to be pastors, to be leaders. What a, what a strange but strong word. Hey, not many of you should, should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I have written in my Bible, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> the word more means there's a difference. There's going to be a different assessment. That's why it makes me more uncomfortable to not preach the fullness of God's word than it would be to, not, to preach only the, the fun things to talk about. I'm much more uncomfortable because I feel the weight of this verse that I will be held accountable to have spoken and, and given and uh, presented the truth. So there, there's a difference. Now watch this. Here's where you, th- you thought you were off the hook. Like, whew, glad I'm not one of you, know, one of you guys but here's where it puts all of us on the hook. Watch this. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, here's the word again, much more. Much more will be asked. Now, the challenge for us is that we live in, a, in, in a, a time of great opportunity living in the United States of America. We are the, the wealthiest, if not one of the wealthiest countries in the, in the world. We have technology at our fingertips. We have, we have the ability to study the, the Bible in a deep way, you know, honest, uh, being truly honest with you. You know, we in seminary learn a bunch of stuff and we forget more than we've learned, way more than we've learned. I live in a Bible program. I'm not a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar. I And I'm like, man, it's available to all of us. We have technology. If we want to be a study or learner of the Bible, man, it's right there for you. We have the audio that can, the best preachers in the in the world, we can get just on YouTube and, and watch. I, I told you, once a month, I listen to Billy Graham, uh, his old crusades, just to get fired up. We can travel. We can uh, go from one place to the next. I was, you know, last weekend in the DR. It's a three-hour trip. Uh, sounds like Gilligan's Island. That's not great. Uh, you, know, it's, uh, you know, so much is to, to that we have an opportunity. Jesus is saying, you'll be held accountable for that much more than someone perhaps who's living without so much opportunity. Let me take a sensitive issue. Uh, last weekend when I was in the DR, in part of the training, we do a lot of interactive stuff. And I said, let me tell you about American culture because we look at the predicaments of the church and how discipleship fixes and addresses some of those predicaments. And so we do these things called voting stations. Usually we go around, but in this case, because the, the room didn't allow us to do that, and so I said, hey, I want you to stand up uh, on one of the, f- the five following choices, and so I started by saying, I want you to stand up if you think that 50% of American Christians are willing to keep nine apples and get, get, uh, got, uh, give God one back. It's the, the, the fancy Bible word is tithing. In other words, to, give, to keep 90% and to give 10% back. If you think 50% of American Christians, now in their mind, they, they see us as a land of opportunity and, and wealth. If you think 50% of Christians tithe, they're willing to give God one apple out of 10, would you stand? We had a few who stood. If you think American Christians, uh, 40% of American Christians are willing to tithe, would you stand? I would say maybe 10 stood out of 60 people. If you think 25% of American Christians give back one out of 10 apples to God, 10%, would you stand? Most of the room stood. I said, if you think 10% of American Christians are willing to tithe, would you stand? Maybe three. If you think 2% of American Christians are willing to give God back, just one apple out of 10, would you stand? And no one stood. When I told him that the answer was 2%, the room gasped. There's opportunity, and when I hear Gustavo this morning, who they're working from a position of not a huge amount of resources, as you can imagine, but they're giving water to 2,500 families, they're teaching hundreds of children every day. This is when I said to him at the last of our, our time in our interview, we're going to learn from you. We're going to learn from you. It's so challenging, is it not, and um, living in this culture. We're swimming in the deep end, and this is not to make you feel guilty. Okay, it is. Okay. <laughs> It's to say, hey, let's wake up. There were, there were times like Jesus said, hey, it's not your best. It's not your best. So I'm reading this, this book in our men's group, our small group, uh, called All In by Mark Batterson. Maybe some of you have seen it. He's got an interesting uh, section on John Wesley, and I, it caused me to even study more. Uh, Wesley was one of nine children, and uh, they were impoverished, and Wesley's dad was in the ministry, Wesley's dad was sent to what was called debtor's jail, couldn't pay his debts. So it's pretty surprising that John Wesley went into the ministry. You would think any, any one of those nine kids were like, well, I know what I'm not going to do when I grow up. And yet, because of the call of God, it, it caused him to, uh, to not be able to uh, run from it, uh, from the call of the ministry. He started out with just making pennies, John Wesley, when he went into the ministry. And then he got a job at at Cambridge teaching. I don't know if you knew that. And uh, all of a sudden, he was making more money. And the more money he made, the more money he spent. I know how this feels. When my wife and I lived on the East Coast, we made more money than we had ever made, and we were in more debt than we had ever had because I kept telling myself, well, we just pay it off next month. And then we went deeper in debt. I'm like, well, this wouldn't take us a few months to pay it off. You know how that debt game goes. And then, you know, you go deeper and deeper in debt. We're like, well, we can probably pay the thing off in a year. I mean, we got, you know, good salaries and all that jazz. So I know how that is. It's an American virus, is it not? Sometimes it's not our fault. I, I don't, like you, probably get a half a dozen of credit card offers in the mail all the time. And John Wesley fell into this trap of, of spending everything that he he got, and there was a knock on his door one day. as a single mom she was she was out on the streets, as we would say, not a not a penny to her name, and she came looking to him because he was in the ministry, she came looking for help. He reached literally reached in his pocket, and there were just uh, a few coins, and that 's all he had because he had spent it all, and that day. God convicted him. And he said, I'm just going to start living on $20,000. You know, I've translated into our, our uh, uh, inflation and value today, so many pounds, but in our day, about $20,000. The next year, he made $22,000. He was committed to living on $20,000. The next year, he his salary doubled, and he was writing books, and he was getting some commissions in. His salary doubled to $40,000. He lived on $20,000. He made this commitment to keep the same no matter, and then it went to $60,000. He, li- he lived on $20,000. And then it went higher and higher, and he lived on $20,000. Batterson says this, that during his lifetime, Wesley gave away approximately 30,000 pounds, adjusted for inflation. That would equate to $1.7 million. He goes on to write, Wesley continued to raise his standard of giving even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds. He lived simply and gave away almost, uh, away all surplus money after he had taken care of his family and his, and his bills. He died with a few coins in his pocket, but a storehouse of treasure in heaven. He had a different outlook because he understood that he was going to be assessed differently. That's our first difference here. There's also, we find in the scripture, a different outcome. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching and he says, Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called Great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, what we pick up is that there's going to be least and there's going to be great. Uh, We'll all be happy, but there are some responsibilities that are given that are least and great. You remember when the disciples were kind of fussing with each other and they were like, hey, uh, you know, we've given up a lot. Can I sit here in heaven? And and Jesus didn't deny it like, oh, that's not going to happen. We're all going to be equal. He said, hey, it's it's not the time to talk about that. And ultimately, you know, that decision is going to be made later, but he didn't deny it. So wh- what we see is there are different outcomes in heaven. There's also different distributions in heaven. In other words, we go to the story of the parable of the talents, as I as I said before. This is a little bit of a lengthy reading, but the story is important. I've already given you the story where this this boss, this this manager, this owner has given out to servants, employees, we would say, Uh, a certain amount of money, and then they return. This is the return part in Luke chapter 19. The first one came and said, sir, your mina, or what you gave me to do, your talent, your dollars, whatever, has earned 10 more because I really worked at it. And the master, in this case, Jesus said, well done, my good servant. By the way, you'll, you'll notice that he didn't say, well thought, my good servant. Hey, well spoken, my good servant. Or, well-intended, my good servant. He says, well, what? Just want to make sure you're with me. Well done, my good servant, his master replies. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Now, the next guy comes. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master said, okay, you take charge of five cities. Different distribution. Verse 20. Then the third servant, another servant, came and said, hey, here's the one you gave me. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth because, see, I had this image of God that you were mean, that you were angry. I was afraid of you because I know that you are a hard man, in this case, a hard God. And you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you don't sow. And it's like, not a good picture of God, not an accurate one. Verse 22, the master replied, I'm going to judge you by your own words then, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Why, why do not you just put the money in deposit so that when I came back, you would at least I could have collected interest? So watch what happens. This is a sobering part. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina from him and give it to the one who has 10. They said, sir, the Greek translation is dude. I'm just wondering, <laughs> right? Dude, that's not right. What's up with that, right? Basically is what he's saying. If we can temporize it. <laughs> Sir, that guy already has 10. He replied, I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has done nothing, even what he has will be taken away. This is sobering. This is a reality. But the compassion, I'll come back to it. The compassion is Jesus is saying, hey, the clock is running. Don't be that. Don't show up with what God gave you and nothing's been done with it because he's giving us fair warning. There will be a time where there are zeros on the, on the game clock. And he says, I love you so much. I don't want that to happen. You see the Compassion. He's not like, I can't wait to kick your britches. That's not God. <laughs> At least I'm counting on it, of course. He's like, man, I, I want something better for you. I want something better for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. No one can lay any foundation other than that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any male, man builds on this foundation using silver, gold, costly stones wood, hay, or stubble. His work will be shown for what it is. Nobody will fake out the Lord in that day. We gave, but why did we give? Oh, God, thank you. Uh, Wow, 10 apples. Man. Or in Wesley's case, wow, 10 apples. God, take eight. Because it was from his heart, our intentions, our motivations, why we did what we did. And let me just stop and be honest because I think it helps people along. There are times in my life I've done things for the wrong reasons. I have. E- even ministry spiritual things. I've done things for the wrong reasons. I've created, you know, things on my own. I've had, you know, my ambition kind of gets, uh, you know, mixed in with God's. And, and and I'm just being honest so that you can say, hey, I'm me too, you know, so you don't think I'm up here you know, uh, anything above you. I'm only, you know, a foot above you. That's because I'm standing on a piece of wood, but (laughs) it happens. And let me just speak to myself. All that's just going to burn up. It's not going to be worth anything. It's not going to be gold or silver. It's going to be like, wow, whoop, poof, that's it. And Jesus is trying to compassionately say, hey, don't, don't be about that. Remember when he said, if you're praying out in the street and praying for a show, well, you've already got your reward. There's not going to be one. So Paul goes on to write, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. But if it's burned up, watch. Here's your security. He will suffer loss but he himself will be saved. We're not worrying every day, oh, am I in heaven, am I out of heaven? Because the Father would be totally not compassionate. If we're, if we're left up the house, I hope I did good yesterday in case I die today. That's not what God is saying. This is all about the rewards, and he said, if it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. So it's like you're showing up for your birthday party and you're really expecting something like candles on the cake, but then, you know, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, You know, like this guy who went to his birthday party and, you know, you don't want to be that. (laughs) I figured I needed to throw that in to let you breathe a little bit. (laughs) Let me tell you something interesting. Here's the order, and if this goes above your head, pardon me, just for 30 seconds, but the church will be taken out of the world at one point. It's called the rapture. At that point, the tribulation will kick in for seven years, uh, and during that time of tribulation, we will be uh, experiencing the Bema Seat. The reason that the order of that is because at the Bema seat, then Christ will return and have a thousand year reign. Now, some of you are already freaked out that Jesus is coming back like, wow, he's going to reign on the earth for yep. another conversation for another day. And I'm sorry if I've just flipped your whole world and boat upside down. But he's going to come back and there's going to be assignments. There's going to be Assignments. And so when the the tribulation is over, it's going to be like we will already be prepared and in assignment, and those assignments will be set for eternity. You see the compassion of Jesus? He's like, man, I want you to reign with me, man. I want you to be with me. I've got something already in mind for you. That's the heart of Christ. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Your Eternal Reward, writes these words, and I think we must say this. He said, some people will say, well, I'll just be content and sit in the back row. Heck, I'm getting a cloud and a harp, aren't I? I'm just going to heaven. That's got to be good in and of itself. He said, but what if those people who sit in the back row are there in, at the beam of seat of Christ because they've displeased Christ in their earthly sojourn? Like, I've got to have a word with you. I've got to have a word with you. Now, you know, in heaven, we're told in Revelation that all tears will be wiped. But may I give you a clue? That happens after the Bema Seat. That happens after the Bema Seat. You understand that the guy who who brought just that one talent, one minor, who who's, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to take that away, do you think in your wildest imagination, and he goes, that's fine, I don't care. It says his heart must have been broken, not because maybe he got what he'd got, but, but, the, but the master that he's trying to serve. It's like, ah, oh man, it's been disappointing. I'll tell you a story. Um, at the height of my performing and music, I had a very well-known music teacher He's still teaching. He's the only teacher I have that's still alive, by the way. And he was very, very well known. And I'll never forget, probably in 25 years of taking music lessons, that was, I remember the hardest lesson. Now, I've had teachers break pencils, throw books, slam stuff, you know, and, you know, it's kind of freaky. But quietly very quietly this teacher came in and I, and I played and it wasn't it definitely wasn't my best and I really wasn't prepared and very quietly he said boy that was disappointing and that's all he said it crushed me it crushed me but it made me it made me work all the much harder next the following week this is why Jesus is saying it. I'm telling you, it's a compassionate heart saying, man, I, I, he's trying to say, guys, I know you can't see it, but it's a reality. And, he, and sometimes we as, a, you know, as human beings, we kind of avoid reality because we're not seeing and experiencing yet, right? But Jesus is saying, I'm trying to tell you, it's going to be a reality. And you don't want to be weeping and disappointed there. Erwin Lutzer goes on to write, we are not well served by a theology that does not recognize the possibility of serious moral and doctrinal defection on the part of believers. We've learned that Paul himself beat his body lest he be disqualified. He lived with the healthy fear that he could end in disgrace and failure. And the fact that we are secure in Christ does not mean that we are incapable of serious failure and with it the loss of rewards. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Why? So that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You notice he did not say I won't be disqualified for salvation, for eternity, but for the prize. So we've seen that there's different, uh, we're assessed differently. There's a different dis- distribution. There's a different outcomes. Just a couple more. There's different dividends. Now, if you're like, dude, this is a heavy message. All in favor of a heavy message. Yes, this is a heavy message. This is the uptick. This is where God says, let me get you excited about it, okay? I've kind of sobered you up to the reality, but let me say that there are dividends of multiplication in heaven when we work here, you remember Wesley, we looked at it last time. He said, Wesley's like, man, I'm fighting for everything I can because of there. I, I, want, I want dividends in heaven. Watch, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will it be for us, dude? Now, I have two boys at home. This conversation has never happened in our whole life. Of course it has. Hey, I worked out there, you know, longer and harder in the garden. You know, how come I just got the same, right? This is human beings. So Peter comes and like, hey, wait a minute. We've left a lot, you know, for this whole operation. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Watch. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields or paychecks or convenience or time. Anyone who's given up those things for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. See, Christ is saying, "This is what I want for you." I don't want you to show up empty-handed because I'm ready to take your five and make it 500. I'm ready to take your 5,000 and make it 5 million. I'm ready to give you dividends on the service that you had on earth. This is, the, this is our Lord. There's different dividends in heaven. Finally, we end with this, and this is where we park it today. This causes us to have a different worldview. What's important? How we spend what we look at, what we don't look at? Do we operate from convenience? Do we give out of excess? Or are we willing to say, God, I understand that this this world right here, it's not all there is. There's is going to be a different worldview. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon lived by the the now famous carpe diem mindset, seize the day. But he also lived by these two words, Corum Deo, which means living before the face of God. See, this is the, this is the worldview that we have, that we're running this race. We understand the clock is on, that there will be a zero someday on this time clock. But we're living our lives in the face of God, who's watching, who's measuring, who's championing us, who's on our side. Sitting on my desk, other than many piles of lots of everything, (laughs) I don't have a lot of little trinkets and whatnot, but sitting on my desk, there's something this tall. It's an hourglass. I've had it sitting on my desk for a long time because I want to remind myself that today may be the last grain. Today may be the last grain. The clock is ticking. What are you going to do with today? Carpe diem, coram deo. I brought a picture I want to leave with you in your memory today. It's an interesting optical illusion. It's a $5 bill that pictures the Lincoln Memorial on it, you see. And this caught my attention because this is the life that we're stuck in. We only see a picture from the Bible of what reality is. So the $5 bill represents for us, this is all we can see right now. But Jesus, you'll notice in many of the things he said today, I tell you the truth. He started the phrase, I tell you the truth. What he's saying is, behind the illusion of what you're getting, the picture that I'm compassionately giving you, man, there's a reality. There's a real thing behind the replication, the picture of it. Make sense? And for this reason, I think this is why Moses wrote these words in Psalm 90. He said, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom... That word wisdom is also used in Ephesians 5.15, and the old King James, I think, gets it right. The newer version says, live wisely, but the King James says, live circumspectly. Now that's not a word I've used last week. What it means is live in circumference. What is right around you that God is saying, it was that conversation? That was the opportunity. That was the talent. That, there's my bank account. There's my schedule. There's my family. There's, there, what, just Christ is not asking us to be Billy Graham. All he's saying is, what did I put in your hand and your circle? Live circumspectly in respect to the circumference. Does that make sense? Listen, I'm going to say it one more time. Christ is your champion. Christ is your champion, and in compassion, he lets us get a picture now of the reality coming. Let's pray. Father, your compassion shows up in so many different ways. And in today, God, we see your compassion showing up in a way that you're Eliminating surprise, surprise of the reality, and God, not so that we will fail, but that we'll we'll experience great joy, great exhilaration, and pleasing your heart, God, that's what we want. We can't even measure how great it will be. We don't know. We're only seeing just a slim picture, and we can only understand a thimble. But God, our heart's desire is to hear you say those words. Way to go. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And so today, God, I'm going to pray perhaps something odd As human beings, God, and and as Americans, as you know, we sometimes run from uncomfort, and discomfort, and and unsettling. And so today, God, if there are those here today that are a bit unsettled by by th- this message from your word, these pictures that you've painted, God, I'm going to ask they not run from it to avoid. uh, They avoid the discomfort of reality, of being sobered, or even the working of your Holy Spirit, God. Because greatness comes out of wrestling. and, And greatness, God, comes out of repentance and change, of course, and confession, God. We've seen it over and over in your word and in our life experience. So I pray for those right now that may be Unsettled that to recognize that that unsettling comes from a compassionate father, but at the end of the day God just I'm praying that we won't run from it. God I pray that for those who've had a picture like this one guy in this parable they got a picture of you that you're mean and angry and can't wait to kick us in the pants God that Today, we change that picture and allow your word and, and your spirit, God, to perhaps resculpt a different image in our mind. That you are for us and you're for your mission. So, God, I pray for those that just need a different picture of who you are today. I pray, God, for our worldview. What's important to us, God? It's easy as soon as we walk out the doors to swim again, right in our culture, and and we and we learn today from people like Gustavo, who are looking circumspectly. They're looking in their their circumference of around them, and just giving out of what you've put in their hands and their opportunities. I just pray we'll be learners today. And finally, God. We pray for those that may just be freaked out right now, honestly, that somehow just have this sobering moment that they don't have a relationship with you. And I pray even in this moment, God, that they will recognize and you would... uh, give them, reveal to their heart that you're pursuing them because you love them so deeply. And they may think they're here today looking for you and, and perhaps, God, they're surprised that you're looking for them. And so I pray, God, that the, that the love of the gospel, the love of Jesus would just be very real in this moment that somebody had to pay a penalty for our mistakes, our failures, our sins. And Jesus is the one that stepped up to say, I'll do it. And so, God, I pray we pray together for those who are here who are looking for you and, and you're looking for them that they will, they will bridge that gap today. And that gap is bridged by your cross, your offer, your forgiveness, God, to take our old life and exchange it for your new one. And we pray for that. Father, we end this day as we begin, thanking you, God, for your greatness, thanking you, God, for your compassion, thanking you, God, for loving us so much. And uh, we are a grateful people, God. In Jesus' name, amen.